Inyash, why don't you lead us in? Okay. Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm just Dickie. And today we have with us... Oh, uh, I'll go ahead. We've got Rudy Hoffman, who, if anyone's listened to every episode of this so far, you guys will be familiar with his name. He was the life insurance agent who got me hooked up with cryonics, and he's also the author of The Affordable Immortal, uh, which... Oh, nice. You got a copyright there. <laughs> I do. Maybe which I guess doesn't matter to our taxes. podcast listeners. <laughs> no, right. Yeah, we're, again, still doing this all distantly, so we're all doing this over a web conference, and then uh, in order to maintain some semblance of actual communication, we've got our webcams on. But for listeners, it is a physical book that you can buy called The Affordable Immortal. And uh, Rudy, why don't you tell us about the book and uh, about you and what you do? Outstanding. Delighted to, Stephen. And thank you. And thank you for listening, everybody out there. It's uh, exciting to be uh, talking to a whole lot of wonderful, invisible human beings (laughs) in non-real time. The uh, science fiction lifestyles are obviously really existing as we speak. I've thought for decades about how cool it would be to have multiple conferences where here we are. And I'm literally looking at myself and three other people on the video screen in front of me and talking to thousands of people um, in a non-real-time basis. So science fiction is not science fiction, it's actually real. And along with that idea, uh, cryonics, of course, is the cooling of human beings to uh, um, minus 196 degrees Celsius in order to preserve us for future technology. That was a hell of a segue. That was a (laughs) hell of a segue. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I have actually written the book, which I'm cleverly holding up, which is helpful to at least three people on the planet right now. But but since there's no video, video, video for your for our listeners, that's basically the title of the book again is "The Affordable Immortal." Maybe you can beat death and taxes with an exclamation point by Rudy Hoffman. It's uh, published on Amazon and available through Amazon um, in both Kindle formats and hardback uh, and paperback formats, uh, basically about 12 bucks. I got a quick question about that subtitle there. Okay. Um, Does it have anything about how to beat taxes in it? I was going to ask that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there is. Uh, And uh, the the title is obviously a a riff on uh, the well-known Ben Franklin uh, quote, which is nothing is certain in this quote. I actually started out in the book. It says, in this world, nothing can be said or be certain except death and taxes. Uh, so yes, the idea behind what we act, the funding mechanisms we use, um, basically a life insurance policy, also in addition to funding your crowd preservation, also has inherent tax advantages in it. Oh. Uh, so they're actually, uh, that is, it's not just a clever title designed to riff on the uh, beating death and taxes quote by Ben Franklin. It also happens to be uh, based in the reality that there is tremendous tax benefits and advantages to life insurance. Okay. Little bonus sticking it to the man while we're at it. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, with $2.2 trillion being recently, as recently as this week, uh, shoved out to try to keep things from going to com- heck completely, yeah. uh, the uh, taxation factor is liable to be much more extreme in the future. Um, and so that those tax benefits are not insignificant. Uh, I'd be happy to 
briefly, life insurance has tax-free death benefit, tax-free accumulation of the money while it's growing, tax-free access to the money while it's in the policy. Uh, so it's one of the reasons why a lot of smart, wealthy people stuff money into life insurance policies. But the really, really smart ones use life insurance to fund their cryopreservation, <laughs> which means that uh, this amazing new technology that is an emerging science uh, is not just a good concept, basically an accessible and affordable uh, technology for a whole lot of people. Not everybody, but uh, for something like a dollar a day or two or three dollars a day, money that a lot of us blow in a Starbucks whack when you could go to Starbucks. Um, by the way, for those of us who are hearing this, we are recording this, of course, on what is this, April the 2nd of yes. 2020, uh, about 32 days into the zombie apocalypse. And uh, the, uh, for the future, when we listen to these, these podcasts in the future, we'll say, oh my goodness, do you remember how rapidly that happened that all of a sudden everything completely changed? Yeah. Uh, but we can talk about the uh, uh, the... COVID-19 thing, uh, which it hardly goes, I don't think it's a conversation occurring perhaps on the planet, does not mention that. But uh, as a point of information, that's one of the reasons our Quranic's inquiries have actually stepped up, because the uh, imminence and reality of death in its most ugly forms has become more obvious to, I think, all of us. Uh, I was talked today with a video conference with one of my clients who happens to be COVID-19 positive. Ooh. And uh, along with her, two out of the three kids are COVID-19 positive. So it's, again, it's not theoretical, it's real. Uh, people do get sick, people die, people have accidents. And to my, my, to my way of thinking, every one of those deaths is like a library burning down. A true tragedy. Uh, if the amount of, think about the amount of information that's composed in your brain, in each of, each of your brains, and it, it puts a library to shame. It's basically, you know, you know, we have trillions of bits of information. And each of us is kind of an irreplaceable part of the of the universe. And to have that that consciousness that uh, that whatever it is that makes us us um, go away almost certainly permanently, because there's no evidence that any of the silly superstitions people call religion is accurate. Uh, and to have that go away permanently is just a true tragedy. And... And For I, those who are, go ahead. Oh, I don't. I'm not even sure. Like, library is a good analogy anymore because nothing in a library is unique nowadays. It's more like if the Library of Alexandria burned down, which was oh, brilliant. Just, yeah. Yes, thank you. And it's the, uh, uh, yeah, the Library of yeah. Well, there's truly irreplaceable information, and um, so if if you, we think of ourselves as everything that has gone into making what us we are, and our in the old verbiage, we'd call it a soul. Um, you know, those of us who are hardcore rationalists and realists, you know, to typically reject that term. But there is something that makes you a unique, special entity. And um, the whole concept of cryonics is that by simply preserving the brain, you in the brain pattern that you are, uh, there's a reasonably good possibility, we think, that a future technology can fix what we died of, fix the damage caused by the process itself, and restore us in some form, in some mechanism, to vibrant and levels of good health and bliss that we even only dream of now. 
and that is the the dream I sell, if you will, and it may come across as a little flaky. But we try to be, you know, while we try to be hardcore rationalists, I think it's also incumbent upon me as a promoter of cryonics and I'm unabashedly a promoter of cryonics to basically explain that our mission is not simply to come back in the format that we might die from. Obviously, we don't, when nobody wants to come back near death and feeling <laughs> awful and old and aged and decrepit and have the... And full of cryoprotectant. Full of cryoprotectant, <laughs> which is, by the way, still fairly toxic. Yep. Um, and so we, instead, uh, but the, the premise of cryonics is to actually come back feeling as good or better than you felt the best day of your life when, when the miraculousness of being alive, of having some, of it being existing was just really obvious and you know I, I would love to say I have a whole bunch of days like that I don't know if about you but I don't uh, but every once in a while you do have one that's close you say oh my goodness this is what it's about I used to, uh, I used to have yeah pretty darn good days until I injured my back about god almost a year ago now and it's it's been eye-opening to see what it's like to live with pain and I didn't realize I didn't quite realize what it was like for people that had to do that Wow, it is paradigm shifting, I, I suspect. I, I mean, I feel so much worse for everything Steven's ever gone through because I know he's got the same thing. And yeah, it's it, it it makes you hate our monkey meat suits even more, you know? <laughs> there should be some way to get this, this stuff replaced, fixed up. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I maintain mine's a little less severe. What 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 was that a reference to, Stephen? I didn't quite. Uh, oh, you know, I should mention that he felt bad because uh, his I, I've had back issues for, let's see, it's April coming up on nine years, I guess, but it's not as severe as what Enosh is going through. So I just wanted to make that clear that he's 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 been more, uh, uh, he's been enduring more than I have. So I, I don't want you to pretend like I'm doing a whole lot, Enosh. Uh, I just I needed that out for posterity. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I like the, um, I guess I'll, I'll let you keep going with your, with the, just by all means, please continue, Rudy, as, as, as enjoying Oh your... yeah, th- thank you. Well, I, I, well, thank you. I, I think, you know, the, the concept here we're talking about is the bliss of how, you know, potential bliss. And uh, I think um, a lot of smart people, including some of the people very possibly listening to this podcast, have speculated that in the future, we won't just be, have levels of misery and quite frankly, the human condition has enabled levels of misery that are just shocking to most of us. And Enosh, the uh, to have that paradigm shift where all of a sudden your back hurts is, uh, you know, is 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 helpful to me. I mean, it, it makes us realize, hey, and I've and I've had a situation where my wonderful wife has both of her knees just hurting virtually all the time. Uh, we're basically, and that is pretty, you know, it's a drag. Let's face it, we've got, the human condition has some pretty awful components to it. I, I much it, more understand why youth was so valued in the past, because, you know, a hundred years ago, if you had this sort of injury, you're just like, oh, okay, I'm broken and much less useful to everyone around me for the rest of my existence now, plus all the pain. And at least a hundred years ago, you had like alcohol and opium to help you through the pain. Go back a few hundred years more and you got nothing. You're just, 
God damn. But at least <laughs> now you know. Really t- at least now you can still contribute to society, and you're not just having to run around lifting heavy things yeah. and carrying, you know, uh, dead animals and stuff. You can contribute. Right. You can, those, you can contribute values. Those buggers must have been incredibly mind. tough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but of course, they didn't have a choice. That was it. Wasn't like there was a choice. You know, you think about how much better life is, and I think, and Ash, that's a reasonable, you know, jump. Uh, and some of us, I'm sure, if you, some of you listening to this have read one of my very favorite books of all time. By the way, Bill Gates said this is my favorite book of all time, and it's not my book, unfortunately. It's Harry Potter and the Methods of <laughs> Rationality. <laughs> yeah, like, almost. Uh, that should be That's another great book. Uh, but the the book, of course, is by Steven Pinker called Enlightenment mm. Now. I see that Dinesh is uh, sh- shaking his head. Yes. Uh, well, I haven't read it, but I know uh, of it. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant. I've read it like four or five times, listened to the audio tape four or five times. But the, the subtitle is uh, The Case for um, Rationality, let's see, you know, The Case for Reason, uh, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And I suspect that the the, the niche market that comprises your podcast um, listeners appreciate those values. And Koranicists and transhumanists of all sorts you know, resonate with those values. Uh, the thing is, we now have the technology to do stuff that was clearly science fiction in the past, including this conversation that we're having. And we also are really close to having the technology, although we can't prove it works, to cryopreserve people. And I think it's an important distinction here to uh, make the very important distinction between the thing called protoscience, or early science, or emerging science, and pseudoscience. Uh, A lot of folks, including the people who uh, many would call themselves hardcore skeptics, might lump cryonics into the pseudoscience arena. Uh, Matter of fact, even Wikipedia, which is usually a wonderful bastion of great wisdom, for lack of a better word, and helpful information, has been taken over by trolls in the cryonics arena. There's a couple people out out in the world for some reason that really, really do not like cryonics. And for for some reason, and I'm not sure exactly why, they have managed to uh, take over even the Wikipedia entry. And instead of saying this is an emerging science in which the very best technology is brought to bear to preserve human consciousness, uh, instead they say this is freezing corpses and most scientists think this is uh, completely ludicrous, and there's some just some verbiage in there that's really kind of off-putting that's not even-handed at all. Um, to again, be fair, so it is technically uh, freezing corpses. Yes, it, and, that, and that's a very important point. I see that hand, Ms. Jess. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, all, what was it, 4,000 listeners, you go edit Wikipedia. If you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yes, thank you. Yeah, because we, 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 we've had some... Like when, go ahead. Like when Stephen Colbert saved the elephant population, yes. he had his audience go and go and like add a zero to the number of elephants in the wild, and he's like, "We did it. We saved them." Wow, <laughs> I like it. Although this will be less, this will be less dishonest. Yeah, exactly. That's a great, great analogy, though. And the uh, yeah, that is a. But I, my the reason I'm bringing that out is because Wikipedia, in my mind, has been one of the most amazing emerging technologies that enable has enabled collaboration of of some of the best. Information and I, I'm not negative about Wikipedia by any means. I am just—it's just an anomaly having to do with uh, with the current um, way that cryonics. If you could look at cryonics and how it's perceived on there. Um, in contrast, of course, we have a 
sign, uh, open letter by signed by hundreds of scientists that shows cry that says cryonics will almost you know has a very good chance of working. We can't guarantee it works any more than your doctor can guarantee your heart operation is going to work. You know the reality is there's lots of variables that can go wrong in any technology and an emerging technology, but conceptually there is we have good reason to believe and we have actual positive documentation and photomicrographs to show that brain structure, your actual structure, is preserved with a high degree of fidelity uh, down to not just the cellular but even intracellular level. Um, and you know that is the whole concept of vitrification which is not freezing and it's an important distinction we're not quote freezing corpses uh, two two wrong concepts there one this cause somebody the difference between you being near death and all of a sudden being pronounced dead does not mean your brain pattern goes away we know that from many people who have been brought back um, and it turns out their brain pattern if they if it wasn't more than 10 15 minutes is still there and if they're cooled down if you fall in the ice someplace you can that's we have half an hour 45 minutes hour hour sometimes two hours people have been brought back with their brain pattern still intact this is hard science yeah a this corpse, is reality a corpse is defined as you know when legal death has been proclaimed and that's just someone saying yep this person's dead now so great it's, it's a gray line Precisely. But you're not dead. You're not dead until you're warm and dead. Yes, and your brain pattern starts to really go away now. Which is not saying that if you die someplace and have you know an hour and a half or three hours or two days of warm temperature ischemia that that's not a bad thing. Obviously, we don't think there's there. You know, we don't. There may at some point there's a concept called information theoretic death that'd be pretty difficult to come back from. But the whole idea that death is a single binary event is simply quite frankly ignorant and it's ign ignorance that no way we should not have given the current information that people have clear access to so we're not one a corpse is not a corpse just because some medical professional says he's dead uh, the other thing is that the we're not freezing people we're basically cryopreserving them with the best medical technology we have which still is not perfect but the new vitrification protocols, especially when properly executed immediately after uh, pronouncement of legal death, uh, preserve structure with a high degree of fidelity. And that's an important concept, and I think it's an important concept our readers, should, listeners should understand. So I know there's been, well, actually, I don't remember how many exactly. I know it's been over 100 people that have been uh, vitrified so far. Do you know how many of those were really good cases because I know some percentage of them were less than ideal when they were getting uh, vitrified and I, I don't know how many were in good conditions. Yes, thank you. and I, I will make sure that you get your observation in there, uh, 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 Jess. But the uh, uh, right now the status of Koranics is that it's still there's less than 5,000 people signed up. There's probably about 150 people at Alcor and who are cryopreserved, about that same number at the Cryonics Institute. Uh, to answer your question, earlier cryopreservations, a lot of them were bad, quite frankly. The mechanics and logistics were simply not there. Uh, the cryoprotective agents and earlier protocols were simply, you know, primitive, quite frankly. Uh, in direct response to your question, I just spoke with Diane Cremines, the Alcor director at um, of a membership person 
and I was asking her that very question, you know, what percentage now are getting good cryopreservations? And it's their statistics for the last like four years is about 82% are getting really what we call good cryopreservations at bedside um, bedside pronouncements where the cryonics techs with their perfusates and their and their ice are literally right there the minute and moment death is quote pronounced you're immediately cooled down so um, that's a long answer to a short question but right now basically 80% of people are getting good cryopreservations and Jess could, that's a really yeah, go ahead I'm sorry go ahead uh, I want to make sure that I respond to Jess's uh, she is you can't see it if you're listening but she has her finger up which I thought was nice yeah we've been trying to make hand signs so we're not just talking over each other all the time um, it's harder to see on the see camera. You unless, you, uh, unless you talk. Yeah. Uh, oh, because you don't have the strip up top? I don't have the strip. I don't know why it's not there. Uh, anyway, yeah, go on. I'm curious what makes um, what makes cryopreservation more than just freezing now? And like particularly, what was the, what made the old process uh, bad and that has been improved in the new process? That's a reasonable question, Jess. The... Uh, big distinction, what I'd call a real bright shiny line, and that it's still just now emerging into popular consciousness, is that uh, the distinction between basically straight freezing, i.e. they take you and I, any of us right now, your heart stops beating and we throw you in a freezer and then throw you in liquid nitrogen, basically a thing called freezing occurs. You know, we're about 70 or 80 percent water when uh, you know, we know that you put a tomato in the freezer and freeze it. It's not the same tomato that it was, you know, when you bring it out. That's because a whole bunch of bad things happen with, with freezing. Uh, and, and so the concept is to instead replace the water in our systems with a vitrification agent. The new vitrification agents basically replace that water with a vitrification solution, in essence a biological antifreeze that means when things cool down instead of having ice shards, instead of having a whole lot of uh, um, pressures and osmotic pressures as a function of, of the cooling, the everything kind of glassifies in place. If you can think of like a plastination process, uh, now that does that does not mean we can still really bring any people back or even we don't have cats and rats and dogs yet from cryonic temperatures. We do have vitrificated, vitrified organs that are viable after being carefully vitrified. But to answer your question, that distinction has to do with the current vitrification agents and that uh, actually occurred about 10 or 15 years ago, although the current iterations are better and better, less toxic, reduce freezing damage even greater as a iterations improve. Was that responsive to your observation or question? Yeah. Um, how do they prevent uh, cell rupture, these new agents? Yeah, they, it's my understanding that basically the, free, the freezing process requires basically water. For, you know, water is, and so the idea is to re, do initial washout with a washout solution that washes the blood out because blood will coagulate and become acidified and slower. And then and then in a separate um, process, promote through the vasculature, through the carotids, a 
the vitrification agent that basically goes through our entire vasculature, which you probably know is 100,000 kilometers long. I mean, we've got a whole bunch of wiring in us. And utilizing the existing vasculature in our system, uh, that perfusate is, um, goes through our system and gets pretty much to all, all of our cells. Now, there are some areas that are hard to perfuse, the inside of your eyes and your inside of your blood marrow, bone marrow. So, you know, it's not it's not a perfect process yet, but our main thing is to get our, our brain perfused. And that's what the distinction now is. We now have photomicrographs of what happens with good cryopreservation to brain structure, where it shows all the, neuro, the neurons and dendrites basically still there. Now, warming them up, of course, is still a problem because there's a separate set of damage upon warming them up. But uh, the point being, we are we're preserving cryonics works if you define as preserve structure even today. Cryonics does not work if you say the definition is can you take people down to liquid nitrogen level and bring them back with no damage. No, no, we can't do that yet. But we think there's a good reason that we, we have good reason to believe we will be able to. Are you familiar with uh, the Connectome uh, Preservation Project? Uh, yes, in general. that uh, The guy that uh, wrote the book on Connectome, I'm trying to think of his name. Come on, Brain. Um, he spoke at the one of the Alcor conferences. Um, I don't remember uh, the name this, either. This is, this is the... Uh, and I know there's a, a prize for, for the Brain Preservation Prize that uh, has recently been won by a fellow who worked for 21st Century Medicine, basically an organization that does cryonics research. Robert is his first name. I think you guys guy. interviewed him on an earlier episode before I was yeah, on the I podcast. Robert McIntyre. Yeah, that exactly. Right. Yeah, he, yeah. He's, he's, he's Robert McIntyre. He spoke and he had, he'd used a combination of plastidization and cooling down to preserve brain structure. Uh, the challenge there being that that plastinization is hard to actually, you know, it's destructive. Re- yeah, yeah, it's destructive, and it, now it may work if you can we can microscan them and upload us to a computer, uh, which is another good possibility. And that's you know most of us are quite open to that. This uh, this uh, meat meat puppet was that your your verbiage there? <laughs> yeah, meat suit, I think. Yeah. This, this 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 meat puppet uh, infrastructure and uh, is is prone to way too many problems uh i agree we need the we need to find a way to up, upgrade this and uh you know most of the people who are signed up for cryonics are really forward thinking smart people who realize that basically this particular thing that dna and if we've evolved to is not the end in itself it's just a kludge that's been put together and how we happen to be here it's evolution in action but it doesn't have to be the end of evolution we got to continue to evolve to much more possibility creatures. I think most that makes sense. Yeah, I think most children, if you were to ask them to improve the design of the human, could come up with a bunch of ideas. <laughs> like, definitely, yeah. this is. Let's not start with a the back that doesn't hurt, with knees that don't screw up all the time. Yeah. Anybody else want to join the? Uh, you could join a uh, class action suit because of all the glitches in the body, and maybe question is who do you sue? I was thinking the Pope. I'd like to sue that guy. <laughs>
He's got got some money, at least. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. He's a a representative of God who allegedly designed us, so I think he should be held responsible for all the fact they fuck up so much. It's just ridiculous. Hey, man, we were perfect Uh, before the fall, and then... (laughs) Maybe that was it. Yeah, then God got really vengeful and introduced a bunch of errors, I guess. (laughs) It's like, roll them back to the prototype version. But the main idea I do want to get across to our listeners in in their limited time that we have is that not only that is Quranics a real, legitimate emerging science, but that it's available and affordable to most people listening to this podcast. Uh, the Even though it, there's a fairly high cost to it, basically $200,000 at Alcor, about 150000 at CI for the whole package, that cost is typically borne by an extra life insurance policy that might cost uh, 80 cents a day or a buck and a half or $2 a day. Some kind of, you know, some of the older, depending on your age, uh, depending on the type of coverage you have, and we have people spending four or five, six dollars a day. But all, a lot of times, those are on policies that actually accumulate a cash value that have that tax benefit of a cash value, and they're designed to go forever. They're permanent index universal life policies. But the point being, instead of you don't have to have two hundred thousand bucks to be signed up for Cranics, you just need to be able to qualify for a life insurance policy, and. The actual mechanism to find out that out is to simply go to RudyHoffman.com, fill out a, a website form, for, get it some quotes and get some ideas to see if this might be a fit. So excuse me for sounding like a little bit like a salesman, but I happen to be a salesman. I was about to give you a sales pitch and point out that uh, I I got on with Rudy would have been something like six or seven years ago, and I think I was paying 27 bucks a month. And uh, that that covered the um, cryonics uh, membership or the not the membership, but the fee for the cryonics Institute, as well as Hispanic Animation Incorporated, which is the company that flies out and uh, actually gets your body ready for, for preservation and flies you out to a tank. And uh, if you're at the cryonics Institute in uh, Clinton Township, Michigan, um, sometime last year, you contacted me about getting on one of those beat taxes uh, plans, too. So um that's that's the one that, like you said, it, it, there's like an accrued interest that I get to capitalize on whenever I want to cash out on it. If and if I wait till I'm ninety, it's in the many hundreds of thousands or something. Um, I do have a question. I don't remember the numbers. I do right have off. a question about that. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, mainly we want to cover a lot of the logistics of how this works. But uh, since we're on this topic right now, um, you have to sign over ownership of the life insurance policy to uh, the Chronics Institute uh, when you get it, right? Yeah, great question, Inash. The uh, uh, both Alcor and the Koranix Institute do require that they either be the owner or the joint owner of the policy, which is pretty much the only way they can be sure the policy's in place at any given moment. Yes. Uh, because they do have to scramble the team, et cetera, before the before the actual money's there. But the the great news is that the carrier, main carrier, I'm working with now. Uh, for the last 10 years or so, enables the best of all possible structures, a thing called joint ownership, where basically you are the first owner, and Ash, you are the first owner of the policy, and CI or Alcor is the second joint owner. So that way you can check on the status of the policy. The actual cash accumulation is 100% yours. It doesn't mean that you cannot change your mind or walk away or take all your cash value. Yeah, that's, it simply that's the thing a, I was going to ask about, yeah. that if they're joint owners, how do you um, get all the cash out if when you need to access it, if you need to access it? The uh, short answer is there is a, a secondary document that the, both Koranics orgs have that clarifies that you 
even though they're joint owners, the entire cash accumulation and the entire ability to control the policy resides and stays with you. Oh, good. Okay. So it's been eight years since I signed that, and I just got to thinking about that a few months ago, and I was like, huh, I I know I was comfortable at the time, but I don't remember why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because a lot of times people are of larger policies, like older folks might want to have a big, you know, stuff larger amounts of money into the policy. And if you were putting tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars into a program over time, you want to make sure that the Cryonics Org is not going to basically cabbage onto it. Uh, they are both very, very legitimate organizations, but even though we might intuitively feel that they would do that, it's not that's not good enough. Everything is very much in writing. There's a document that specifies that you are the sole owner of any cash value and you maintain full control. Okay, so if someone is like, hey, I want to get cryopreserved when I die, what uh, what does that entail? How does that work? Um, of course, it's obviously we need to get you signed up while you're alive. And a lot of, well, this is such an easy thing to put off, quite frankly. And as, you, as people are listening to this podcast, I want you to take a moment and realize that right now, wherever, you're, wherever you are, and at any given moment, something could happen to you. If you're driving in the car listening to this, if you're bicycling as I listen to podcasts while li- while bicycling, all of a sudden somebody could come out of left field and boom, there you are, you're gone. Uh, the point being, life is simply risky. And what you need to do is get your cryonics arrangements in place early while you're young, while you're healthy, when you can qualify for life insurance. You qualify for life insurance not just with your money, but with your good health. And all of a sudden, something happens, whether it's a whether it's a heart glitch, whether it's high blood pressure, whether it's a cancer glitch, which, by the way, I had a few years ago. And all of a sudden, life insurance may not be available, or it may be available at a much, high, much higher cost. So the mission here is to realize, if you're really smart, you get ahead of the curve and grab this stuff while you can get it cheap and easy and cheap and easy. Yeah. I want to. I want to. Makes sense. Uh, d- double back on that cheap and easy part thing, because I'm of the opinion that if you get uh, killed in a car accident, you probably are not going to be successfully cryopreserved. Uh, it's just, at least in my opinion, unlikely that people will be able to get to you in time. But uh, the vast majority of Americans die uh, knowing that they're going to die. Uh, they die often in a hospital under supervision or in hospice care. Well over ninety percent of people. And uh, by the time you know you're dying, it's too late to get life insurance because obviously no one's going to insure someone who's guaranteed to die as anytime soon. Uh, yes. I, th- the thing that really like broke my heart was um, I knew of a person uh, who was in the rationalist community and she got brain cancer. This was like 10 years ago or so, just a little before I signed up, I believe. And she didn't wasn't signed up didn't have life insurance and i i'm i don't remember if there was enough donations made to get it funded before she died but yeah there's things like that that can happen you know you just something acts up and you're like oh great now i have a uh, early cancer in my young age or even if you're not in your young age like if you're 25 and you sign up for a 30 year life insurance policy anything a lot of things would happen before you hit 55 so um getting it great, while you're young point. and it's really cheap is a great idea because generally life insurance companies are like, haha, he's 25. He's getting life insurance. We're just going to, you know, get his money for free because he's not going to die in the next 30 years. And they give you super low rates. Great, great observation. But I think you're probably referring to Kim Suwazi, if I'm not mistaken, the Nash 
23-year-old. Uh, uh, and again, if you're listening to this, I suspect you're probably, uh, you may be older, younger than 23, but you know most people think at 23 there's not much existential risk. Uh, she basically got in inoperable brain uh, cancer. And uh, she did throw herself on the uh, part of the Reddit community and the compassionate uh, arms of Coranesis everywhere, including me. I actually spoke with, uh, shared the platform with Kim Suwazi. I spoke uh, immediately a few minutes after she spoke. It was hard to get the uh, audience, uh, um, you know, basically to follow her, where she basically says, I know I'm dying. I'm going to be dead in a matter of probably weeks. It turned out to be a few months after that. Uh, there was actually a New York Times um, reporter that followed that whole story uh, with, from roughly a year and a half from her trying to finding out that she was uh, had the glioblastoma to find to and she act her her boyfriend had called and see if we could get her life insurance. Uh, obviously, we could not. I was I was looking at to see if I could break, find the sheet. As you were talking about that, I got a call. This is what this is Wednesday. It was. Um, this is Thursday. It was two days ago, and basically the guy was desperate to get life insurance, and he was wanted to sign up for Cranix, and so he signed up. He went to RudyHoffman.com, filled the website form out, and um, and I called him up, and he says, "Well, I want to get this right, done right away because I have a uh, I have a lung cancer that I'm going to die," and he was uh, you know late 30s. Um, I won't use his name because that would be inappropriate, but I did later, of course, I told him to tell him immediately, I'm sorry, you're completely uninsurable. No insurance carrier is going to touch you with, uh, with inoperable, with basically lung cancer. And I went and looked at my records, and this is a moving part of this story, and if I wish I could wish I could use his name, but that'd be tacky. God damn it, three years ago, this guy had called up, asked for a quote, we kind of we got him a quote. He wound up messing around and not doing anything. And here he is, three years later, and desperate for life. He didn't care what the rate was. He just needed some insurance. And so the point being, if he would have followed through three years ago, we would have covered him. He would have a you know once you're covered, the insurance company can't change their mind. Now, I have 11 policies totaling three million dollars life insurance on myself. Most of them are written in a preferred health category. I had cancer three or four years ago. No insurance company would touch me the ten foot pole now. But because I had the policy early, you lock your you lock whatever health category you're in there and they cannot the insurance company cannot change their mind. Uh, you can change your mind and say I don't want the coverage. It's called a unilateral contract, but the you you can change your mind, but the insurance company can't. So at the risk again of sounding of sounding you know, back in an ambulance up to the door and sounding like an insurance guy trying to, you know, basically scare people into doing something the reality is you ought to be scared if you ain't scared you ain't thinking straight you're basically rationalizing and thinking that the rules do not apply to you that you're never gonna die you're never gonna get sick well bullshit I don't care how good a take care you take of yourself I don't care if you're vegetarian or vegan it does not matter there's a very 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 high probability that you're going to need to get coverage we're probably not gonna get Unless you're super, super young, I doubt that we're going to beat aging in time for you. That's my message. I got a, well, I'm, I'm assuming you're insured for a good long time. So I guess this is more a question to Stephen. Hey, Stephen, did you get the 30-year policy or what did you get with yours? Um, I think I got like the life policy. I'm not really sure. Uh, 
I should know this on the top of my head, but I don't. <laughs> the documents are in the safe in the closet behind me. I, I, um, I can probably respond to that, basically. Stephen, I, Stephen started, I believe, with a term life insurance policy that's really, really inexpensive, especially in the early years, which is not an unreasonable, unreasonable place to start, especially if you're under 35 or so. Um, and and when I signed up, I was delivering pizzas part-time, so I didn't really have a ton of expendable income. Right. So basically, here's somebody delivering pizzas part-time who was able to afford to sign up for Quranics. And maybe over, uh, I just did a 25-year-old uh, a day. Um, he bought 250000 of a 20-year level term. It was $270 a year. So I got uh, – but to go back to Stephen, um, what is your plan after the term runs out? Because – my my bet when I signed up was that either at that point will be much closer to me not needing life insurance anymore or um, since I got the, the one that builds and that cashes out at the end of the 30 years, that would get me a good third of the way to being able to self-fund it. And maybe after 30 years of savings, I'd have the other two-thirds needed. Uh, do you have a plan for what happens when the 30 years runs out? I don't think I'm on a term policy anymore. Um that's exactly Do you right. Yeah. What I'm on? yeah, that's ex- that. That's what I was getting to. And, and your your question, <laughs> oh, okay. Inosh, is, is 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 absolutely brilliant because term insurance is great in the early years because it's super cheap in the early years. It's super cheap in the early years because the odds are you are not going to die in the early years. But the term insurance that I work with, and to be fair, most in, other insurance guys do as well, is a thing called upgradable term, which means you can lock your term your your health in. You buy a twenty year term or a thirty year term for two, three, four, five hundred bucks a year. Uh, And what that does is lock your health in, but it also gives you a window because you can upgrade that term anytime in the first 20 years. Basically, you can upgrade it as Stephen has done to a permanent policy where the premium is going to be higher, but it's never going to go up. It will lock in level and then stay and actually it'll pay itself in about 17 years. Is the permanent like literally up until the point that you die, even if it's when you're 95? Even if it's 100, if it's your 100, 125. Holy Basically, our policies go to and past age 120. Oh, damn. And I take it, Stephen, that the upgrade in cost was not all that great then. Because I I thought that the ones that are permanent are really expensive. Um, it's not. I, I don't have a good uh, metric since I've only had the two policies. My first one is 27 a month. This one is within a dollar of 60 oh, bucks. Damn. Yeah, no, that's um, not bad at all. Yeah, they... No, I, I didn't think so. I mean, I pay more for uh, Comcast and Excel Energy. I mean, I need those too. I don't know which I need more. If I need internet <laughs> or life insurance more when I come to think of it. But, oh, well, we um, hope you won't have to make, that, have to make choose. that choice. Yeah, related to that, uh, Enosh, is the fact that newer index universal life policies are simply not only better, they're simply cheaper than traditional whole life policies. And it's, it is not magic. It's at the cash accumulation because there's an indirect... Uh, indirect exposure to the standard and poor 500 index, the actual growth on the policy is in the area of 6 or 7% uh, in the cash value. And what that means is that cash accumulation takes, uh, enables a policy to become paid up earlier in about 17 years. So you can pay 60 bucks a month and in maybe 17 years, 17 or 18 years, there'll be enough policy to literally money in the policy to little pay it pay it forever you become you achieve escape velocity in your policy where you can stop paying premiums but the coverage stays in place so it actually is in place in the later years when you need it and that's what's again cool again it's a new technology the re, 
the technologies we have are better than the old technologies and a lot of everyone knows that with reference to their iPhone or their their cell phone and their computer but a lot of folks don't realize financial services has had an equivalent uh, upgrade where basically the newer programs are simply a whole bunch better and that is why you know I, if you were my own brothers or sisters I'd say listen this is what we ought to do you know get start with probably maybe start with the term insurance if we need to for cash flow purposes but try to upgrade that thing in the next five or ten years to where it'll be in place forever that was that responsive yeah that was great so um i want to get cryonics i uh filled out something on your website do i need to contact ci or alcor as well uh normally the actual protocol is initially filling my web going to rudyhoffman.com and look in the videos and filling the website out and then you get your policy in place, and then I send a copy of to the original policy to you, and we send a copy digitally to CI or, or Alcor, so then they know that all the stakeholders have their funding in place, and then there's a separate set of paperwork you do directly all the, over the net, directly with the Cryonics Org. Okay. Does, uh, does Alcor work with uh, local morticians? Because I think CI does still, right? Uh, both CI and Alcor utilize the same cryopreservation team, which is called Suspended Animation Inc. Right, okay. uh, that is a that is technically a um, a segment that's actually not bundled together when you do CI. Alcor has it all bundled together, and they charge in two hundred thousand bucks for full body cryopreservation. CI has bundled it separately, where the CI portion is only thirty-five thousand or even twenty-eight thousand. You pay them twelve fifty a year one-time lifetime membership, but that actually is only a part of it because that's only the CI component. What you have to have is make sure that there's a mechanism to get you from where you are when you're sick or dying to where you need to be, and that is a separate team called Suspended Animation Inc. And they basically their parts about eighty thousand bucks. So the we normally would do a CI package that's Cryonics Institute, Suspended Animation, and Private Air Ambulance. That global cost is 143000 bucks, call it 150, And it's still good to have another. And since you can buy a quarter million coverage at 25, there's a quantity discount at 250000 So basically you can get a $250,000 policy for two or 300 bucks a year if you do start with term. And that way you're overfunded. You got crowd You got the full transportation piece. You don't have to try to rely on local morticians, which is suboptimal, in my informed opinion. I wanted to ask. Actually, I want to dive into that quite a bit. So my wife works in uh, hospice care as a social worker right now. And oh wow, good for uh, her. We we, I know, right? It's it's. Uh, I, I belabor this point every time it comes up, but it is is remarkable work that I have zero aptitude for. And uh, since now we share, well, I have this room and she has the other room, but we, you know, we share a home as our home office. And I can hear her working, and it is, uh, uh, wow, blows my mind hearing her oh, talk to yeah. people. She's, and, she and, works uh, with people who are literally dying. She She's literally working with people who are dying over period of time i i don't have the goodies for that either i, I respect the fact that somebody yeah, does no, I mean, she, she's been she's been present to uh what they call made deaths where people uh basically opt in for physician assisted suicide um you need a doctor nearby but not necessarily next to you uh they give you a cocktail and you take it and you die and sometime in the next uh hour or six really is that and, that's a doable deal that's uh, that's legal in what in what in state Colorado. are you in Colorado. Oh yeah, you guys are progressive. Yeah, so luckily that's legal here. Um, wow, it should be legal yeah, so everywhere. I think yeah. it's Huge. ideal for she, she's been yeah, around people for those. who want to get cryopreserved because then you know exactly when you're going to die. 
Precisely. So that's what I... That's what I wanted to ask about was I'm not 100% sure on the legalities. Well, because when I was talking with her about it, she's very interested in signing up. Um, she will get life insurance policy at some point, and uh, I'll get her a chronics policy. Like, we'll make we'll make that happen. But she, she was skeptical because she sees that, you know, she'll occasionally. Um, so basically, someone's on hospice. They've been determined by a doctor to be uh, like they're going to die in the next three months. Um, you can't have suspended animation sit by your bedside for three months. And so if you're going to die at some point of whatever is killing you in the next 90 days, uh, usually what will happen is she'll get a phone call. Hey, so-and-so died. Oh, okay. Let me start making phone calls. And then she calls the mortuary, uh, the doctor, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not uncommon for the, um, the mortuary transport people to take two hours to show up. And so... Obviously, that's way longer than you want to wait for uh, suspended animation to fly out and get you. So she was just curious, like, how on earth can you put all these pieces together to have this thing in place if you're if you're dying under these conditions? And it sounds like, obviously, the best way to do it is, okay, well, I'm going to take my cocktail at 4.30 p.m. on Saturday. be great if, you know, uh, suspended animation could be there at 4.15, just in case, and uh, have it be ready to rock and roll. But... What is the uh, the what are some of the logistic troubles of getting people preserved under optimal conditions? I should also mention um, that when you're signing up with uh, Chronics Institute, I think there were four boxes and uh, of like, all right, what conditions do you want us to preserve you under? And one of them is like, do whatever you can, no matter what. If you have to scrape me off of a off the sidewalk with a shovel, put that in the bag. Um, I, th- I think that bag. I'm, I'm, I love it. I, I'm, put that in I, the I bag and freeze it. it. Uh, right. I, I think I um, am probably paraphrasing that wrong, but I think there is a yeah. That's exactly the verbiage. I read the whole thing. It's exactly what it said. You're right. <laughs> I I checked the box that said use your own best faith estimate. Good. Uh, Good sounds call. reasonable. So, so Chronics Institute won't won't preserve me. If I, you know, get my head blown off with a shotgun by somebody who, you know, whatever attacks me on the street, or if I get run over by a car and they find me the next day, they're not going to pick up the pieces and throw the biggest parts in a vat. Um, and then luckily there's there's a rider on my policy now where my wife is the beneficiary should uh, Chronics Institute not collect. Uh, she will. So um, it's just, I guess it's worth pointing out that you get you get to pick the conditions under which you'll be preserved as best you can in advance. Um I guess, yeah, I wanted to get that long-winded question out of what what can you do um, to maximize your chance of good preservation? Yeah, that's a... And we can do that with or without a hospice situation. Yeah, you, you brought up a lot answerable. of really important points there, Stephen, and I, as as have you folks as well. And that, you know, the optimal cryopreservation is, is not a black and white uh, thing. It's a continuum, clearly. And... Um, one of the things we can obviously do is avoid what I'll call existential risks. Uh, you know, if we're if you're signed up for Quranics, it probably is not an ideal thing to go do climbing mountains and fall in a crevasse because we aren't going to get you, basically. Or you go down over water uh, and in a plane, and you you know there's simply no getting you. Um, there there are a number of circumstances that basically make cryopreservation impossible. First of all, as you point out, it's important to realize that life insurance does not go, it still goes to someone. You buy a half million dollar policy from me and you die by any, any old way, basically, um, including suicide after two years, by the way. 
uh, you, we, we all pay that $500,000 to a series of someone's. But the with reference to getting the best cryopreservation, one of the reasons why Alcor is shooting about 80 plus percent of good cryopreservations is, as you pointed out, uh, Inash, most of us have some lead time. Life is a lot safer than it used to be. We're not dying of accidents, nearly as high percentage. Most of us, 80 plus percent, are dying of things we have some lead time on. You die of cancer, we're dying of cardiovascular issues. And um, which means the of the dozen or so Quranics claims I've paid, nearly all of them had some lead time, physically got their ass to where they needed to be, to the hospice slash hospital near their Quranics facility, and consequently got really good cryopreservations. Uh, related to the suicide question, or the assisted suicide question, which is something I've been pounding the drum on for decades, and we're finally, it was, that was why I was so interested, Stephen, that it's legal and doable and actually being done where you're at in Colorado. Uh, the very first cryopreservation uh, occurred with assisted suicide in California about two and a half months ago. Oh. Um, yeah, it was a red, the red letter day for a cryonicist because basically this guy was able to do what rationalists understand we ought to be able to do, which is determine the circumstance of your deanimation. And because he can, you can choose the time and the place, etc. Um, it was a, you know, it's a good cryopreservation. Um, that obviously is not available in all states. You know, there's, and we, cryonics is probably controversial enough without adding assisted suicide to it. So it's, but at some point, uh, interestingly, I don't know if this is an aside or not. There's too crazy to mention, but uh, the person I was happened to be speaking with today, who is signed up for Alcor and has COVID-19 was at one point willing to fund a very large amount of money to help us do a court case where we would find a cryonicist who was dying who would sue for the right to do a basically assisted suicide for cryopreservation. And once we get a case like that, then that would set precedent. Uh, unfortunately, it was too early in the curve, basically, um, and the odds, I couldn't get anybody to sign on to this idea because it's too early. I did have an individual who actually was dying of uh, Parkinson's, and he was okay to do it, and then his brother talked him out of it. But the point being, at some point, we will have a, you know, a more rational way that you can decide of the, about the circumstances of your death, which make cryonics a much more viable system to where, where all those all those logistics concerns, which are very real, uh, will be much more minimized when assisted suicide is a more of a standard of care. I know that the cocktail they give in Colorado is is heavily damaging to uh, basically every system it hits before it kills you. Um, and my wife wasn't sure if it also hit the brain i sort of suspect i mean it must hit you know if it's in your body for six hours it definitely does but i don't know how much damage it would do um and i don't know if there are other options for uh self-made deaths in colorado other than this this organ shattering cocktail uh i I wonder i guess without any details on that i couldn't speculate on whether or not that would hurt your chances but um yeah, that that is a good question. Uh, of a successful prize I I know there must be things that can kill you that don't necessarily hurt your brain that much. Uh, I uh, this a week before Christmas, I took our one of our three dogs to be cryopreserved. I took it up to Cryonics Institute. Her name was Hermione. We shot her we shot a picture around her. Anyway, Hermione is a sweet dog, and um, 
I will I will talk about her in the past tense, but I have a pretty good chance she's not in the past tense. Uh, basically, it was uh, we I put her in the plane with me. We flew up to the Koranics Institute. The two in, two in the morning, I was driving a rented car through a snowstorm to get the Koranics Institute. Got to the, the veterinary clinic where I was was literally five minutes from CI. Um, tremendous service levels at CI. There's a really caring, compassionate people. Here's the point related to this. So the dog literally dies in my arms. They bring a they bring a the little injection, and the dog dies. And within seconds, she's being cooled down. Um, so the it was a very you know it was, a, it was quite frankly it may have been one of the best cryopreservations in the history of time. I don't think even other pets have gotten that good a cryopreservation, uh, much less humans. So basically, you know, until when when we can do humans when we can have the same kind of compassion and intelligence that we deal with our pets uh will be it will certainly get better cryopreservations but we can't wait don't 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 wait to sign up till that day but it's nice to know that the life insurance policies we sell will pay even if you suicide that coverage that you have uh Stephen on you if you if it's past 2 years you can suicide and your policy will still pay out the full Death benefit. I do want to um, warn. That is a, a selling point that I yeah, don't. And want I want to warn people against that too, uh, because unless it's one of those doctor-assisted suicide things, in some states there's uh, mandatory autopsy laws if someone commits a suicide. Oh, which would mean you cannot be um, cannot be preserved at all. Yeah, great, great point, uh, Enosh. And I, I'm not I'm not suggesting people <laughs> suicide. Uh, as a general matter, of course, I'm simply saying that when assisted suicide does become more of an option, that will not be a uh, stopper on the death benefit being being paid out. But thank you for that uh, cautionary observation. You're absolutely right. So one of the reasons you don't want to suicide if you're a cryonicist is that, is that it's almost a it's mandatory autopsy in most states. So, uh, you know, don't be don't be stupid. Be smart. It's it's interesting I, now that you mentioned it, because, yeah, I. I feel for you, and I, I know that that was a, a tough day with Hermione. We uh, we put a cat down, geez, would have been three or four, five years ago maybe. Not quite that long. Um, and it, it's tragic and heartbreaking, and she is uh, the opposite of preserved. She's in a, her, her ashes are in a small box above our fireplace. Um, I respectfully suggest it, it that, that won't mind. grow back. <laughs> That's right. Uh, unfortunately, she she's annihilated from the universe, which is terrible to think about, but... Um, it, it's, this is just pure, like we, we occasionally tangent on this show. Um, I wonder why the cocktail they give you when you, uh, have a physician assisted suicide in Colorado can take hours, but the shot that they give inmates in death row and that they give pets is, I'm sure it's different shots for pets and inmates, but those ones take, um, 30 seconds. If that. I don't. I wonder why. I wonder what the difference is, and why why one gets the long one and one gets the short one. Although, actually, I do know that part of it, the cocktail and the, uh, um, and I'm sure I could look up the recipe for what they give you in the uh, physician assisted suicide. I know that there's a lot of large amounts of opiates. You're not you're not laying there in pain for hours. Um, it's it's if anything a controlled opiate opiate death. Uh, so. I I, I don't think we're anyway, they're, they're worried about that, addiction at that point. Hold but yeah, that that is an interesting question. No, I, no, I. No, no, I, uh, yeah, that wasn't the thing I was making. I was just, I was just making sure that you know it was clear that these people weren't laying there in agony as their organs were being destroyed. They were riding an opium high. Um, <laughs> it was probably the best they felt in a long time. Suggests, uh, I, I want to make sure it, it's it's as humane as possible. 
Uh, Je- Jess, you had a question or observation. Yeah, I um, trying to regenerate it. I was wondering if you knew the origin of or you or Ineash, the required autopsy if you commit suicide. Uh, I, I don't actually know, but I assumed that it was because uh, suicides can often be uh, faked, that uh, it was actually murder, and they want to rule that out. That's my guess. Mine, mine as well. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, and um, and again, if it's a, I paid a death claim on a suicide, but it was six months after the two-year exclusion, uh, the suicide clause expired. So basically, if it would have been inside that two years, the insurance company would have simply added all the added paid all the premium back, but they would not have paid the claim. So if, if the uh, uh, it's remarkable to play that after two years, insurance companies do pay on suicide. A lot of folks do not realize that. Um, and I, but I, with reference to the, to the question about the autopsy, uh, obviously an autopsy is one of something you want to avoid as part of your Quranics paperwork. There's, um, an option to basically say I'm a religious objector to autopsy so that it reduces. I checked that box too. And I felt vaguely dirtied by doing it. (laughs) Cause you ain't that religious, you heathen. I like right. Well, so that, well, that's that's the thing is it would be nice to say I'm a conscientious objector or I'm an informed person who's opting out, but there isn't a, a legal form like that. There's a legal form that says for religious reasons I don't I want like an autopsy. I like to think of yeah. my, my um, rationalism. That, not not everyone, obviously, but me personally, as a, almost a sort of religious aspect, the way it you know guides my life. So I didn't feel as bad. I was like, there are people who call themselves religious that check this box that have far far less knowledge about the philosophy that is supposedly guiding their life, right? They're just like, oh, yeah, I'm Christian, or oh, yeah, I'm Jewish, and they don't do anything with that in their lives, whereas I, like, actually know what um, my philosophy entails, and it guides my life in certain ways, so I was like, I'm I'm more religious than those punks, so sure, why not? Uh, absolutely. How about you, Jess? What's your religious feelings or feelings about religion? <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a rabbit trail we go down for a long time. Save me, Jess. Rationality isn't a religion. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say maybe transhumanism. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, uh, I, there's a whole lot of smart things we could say about uh, religion. It's not a it's not a, a surprise to any of I'm sure of your listeners. I'm sure, Stephen, that uh, you know most of most people signed up for Quranics uh, are not just claims skeptical the claims of religion. Most of us think it's uh, one of the worst ideas that's ever come down the pike. The idea of believing things without good reason is, is faith should be the new F word. We should, you know, use it as a, it's, it's an embarrassment that intelligent, educated humans still are placing a high, high premium on something that is so obviously bad so, as believing something without good reason. I got reason. a question about if anything's changed in the past eight years, um, and I guess also sort of a uh, advisory notice to anyone else listening to this. Um People uh, who might have been your next of kin, someone who may have been able to inherit your stuff, uh, whether it be children or parents or brothers or a spouse, uh, can sometimes dispute claims, uh, life insurance claims or whatever. And I know there's been at least a few cryonic preservations which have been completely screwed up because somebody's greedy ass kid uh, or, or spouse said 
the institute should absolutely not get this money. This money should come to me and it goes to court and the body is just put in a drawer somewhere and you're screwed. So the, yeah, wow. the paperwork in CI said very specifically, hey, this isn't a requirement, but everybody should talk to their next of kin, their family, tell them this is what I want. It should not be a surprise to anyone. And if you can at all, uh, get them to sign on, not to sign on, but to at least say, you know what, I love you and I respect your wishes and I will not stand in the way of this. Because you want you Brilliant. want people yeah. to know that yeah. like this is important to you. This is not desecrating your corpse. This is what you want done. And they have to kind of be on board with that if you don't want legal challenges. I was wondering, do you know, has anything changed in that regard is there more legal oh, protections for us yeah. or is this still Inash bless your heart for bringing that up uh, uh, that is a really really important point and I want to you know em emphasize that whole com that whole section there uh, if I can just kind of summarize some of the things you've made uh, made reference to there one is the relatives affidavit both Alcor and CI have a document that they don't actually require that you have your relative sign. They think it's simply a good idea and they do everything they can do to encourage you. But basically, the relatives sign off saying, yes, I understand that my brother is going to be crowd preserved. So it's not a big secret. They don't fight it. But the other component is how in the world you structure things so that they can't do it. Basically, the way we structure things, you cannot, your relatives cannot fuck it up. Excuse my <laughs> language. The, the basically, here's why. Life insurance has some really unique components. One of those is by operation of law, the money goes directly to the named beneficiary, does not pass go, does not collect $200, does not go to any potential litigants. It goes, it avoids probate, basically, which is a part where litigants can jump on it. So the, now that which does not mean it's not possible to still screw that mess things up. The, but what we do is structure the life insurance policy to where it goes direct, the beneficiary goes direct to the to the Koranics organization. And we also may structure it in a way that the family understands if they contest, they are not likely to get anything. We put verbiage in the, uh, the trust and verbiage in the process that says basically if you, if you contest this, if you do not cooperate, if you do not make the appropriate call, you are not going to be getting my estate or assets. So there's two components to that. One is the fact that life insurance proceeds go direct to the named beneficiary and do not are not subject to creditors. And two is the fact that if you if both the Alcor and CI paperwork have some verbiage that basically states if my if my family does not cooperate they are hereby basically cut off now that's not completely enforceable in all states it's there's that's verbiage that I've been talking with the attorney I'm working with I'm working with an attorney who basically not her and I are writing the book on Koranic's estate planning it's their second book and it's uh, called um, the Koranic's estate planning handbook maybe you can take it with hmm. you and it's on this exact issue basically how do you how do you make sure that your family one doesn't slop it up, and two, if Cranics does work, how can you woke, wake up stone wealthy? Uh, so it's another issue. It's a whole new, new, new uh, rabbit trail to go down. But the power, you know, maybe some people may be thinking, hey, this thing really works. Would it be possible to not just maybe wake up poor? It'd be nice to wake up with a whole lot of options. 
So yeah, there's a whole lot of questions about that, but we, for some of us, have been working about 20 years to try to put together Quranic's trust uh, arrangements that sidestep laws against perpetuities, that sidestep family, um, people who might try to slop it up or take your money, that have a corporate trustee whose job it is to protect your and grow your wealth over time so that if Quranics works, you can wake up with a lot of money. Uh, that's an interesting idea. That's why I have one reason I have three million bucks of life insurance on me. These Quranics trusts, again, you could have without being wealthy, just like you can be signed up for Quranics without being wealthy. You use a life insurance policy to fund the trust. Is that cool or what? Yeah, I mean, it, I love it this. assumes that money will still be a thing in the future, but it might be. Yes, that, that's a reasonable question, and I promise you that is something that we talk about at length <laughs> in, our, in, our, in the book. And uh, we, I, I think some form of money is, you know, and I could be wrong, but some of us uh, are, would rather think, you know, some form of resource allocation is inevitable in any society. I think I'd rather... Uh, could, uh, uh, Assume that money is still going to be a thing. Yes, uh, I think that's a reasonable and safe if it's assumption. Not, then you're probably fine anyway. Yeah. 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 But so yeah, I, I know I, when I know. In, when in doubt, bet on things staying the same. Yes, or or at least that they're the human nature staying the same, and uh, human nature basically is avaricious. Human nature also, you know, we clearly are all leading lives that are so much wealthier than than most people have lived throughout eons, yet most of us don't feel like we, quote, have enough. Uh, we still envy the person who's got 14 uh, computer screens instead of 12. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's not rational. I'm not saying, it's, we're not saying humans are rational. I'm saying, well, humans are humans. And the point being, it'd be nice to have some options. Wouldn't it be nice if you can find a way to buy the new set of lungs to let you breathe water? Oh, yeah. Or maybe you want to have a nice, uh, nice little DNA thing that could let you grow wings so you can fly around. You know, I, I suspect that might take some money. I could be wrong, but it should be nice to have a couple billion dollars to throw out the problem. And uh, with my three million bucks of life insurance and a Quranics trust, it grows to about a billion dollars in just 66 years at a reasonable growth rate. So we have been going a bit over an hour. We should probably wrap it up here soon. Uh, that works for me. Steven, Jess, either of you have any questions or comments for uh, Rudy? I've got one. If you're, uh, I'll, I can't, since I can't see if you're thinking a thought, Jess. What do you do? You have one or do you um, have one to go? I have one. You can go first. Uh, no, you go ahead. Mine's <laughs> probably more ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know. We want the we say the most ridiculous for last, Stephen. But go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. Your, your your question will be perfect, Jess. I have one that's I think a legit question, but also a very silly one, which is, what is the benefits to freezing your whole body versus just your head? Oh, that's not a silly question at all. That's a question. That's a question that uh, Quranicists uh, argue about ad, ad infinitum. Um, the I'm signed up for full body. I'm I'm happy to disclose my bias there. <laughs> I think there's a. I think it's a, it's a well dis, well informed bias, and here's here's why. Uh, at one time there was a Al, Alcor. As a matter of fact, still has some legacy data on their website saying that you know you can get better cryopreservation with neuro only. Uh, and at one time that was the logistics that had to do with uh, perfusion and molarity concentrations of cryoprotective agents so they couldn't access the carotids hmm. and properly get you cry your brain cryoperfused uh, if you're doing a full body but uh, now they can that's the, the the new cryoprotective agent is not as viscous at cold temperatures and the mechanics can of the 
of the perfusing process means we can get full molarity of CPA in the head, even a full body cryopreservation. But the other component there is there's a pretty good, you know, that I don't, I don't, none of us have a chance to interview somebody who's a, just a walking head. So we can't tell it, we can't say, you know, hey, do you feel like you're still you? There's a pretty good chance that our sense of self may be in our, um, as well in our spine or torso. Um, even those of us who are, who believe and who are hardcore materialists and think we're mostly in our brain pattern, my clients who are neurologists and brain guy, brain scientists, they're all signed up for full body because they know they tell me that my brain parts go down to my toes. So all that's my rationale for a full body is a better option. If they don't need that body, they can throw it away, but I'd rather send more information forward. Is that responsive? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I was even thinking about I've, things like gut bacteria, which are also part of it. Yeah, great point. Or my microbiome certainly clearly, hey, I, well, I want those uh, trillions of uh, gut biomes to come forward with me. Do they also they, they get cryopreserved? I think they probably would. That's they tell me there's a whole lot more of those than their human mm. human uh, cells. Uh, yeah, it's a great point. But yeah, they, so it's not, by the way, CI does not give you an option. CI is full body, mm. uh, period. Uh, plus there's also a, a yuck factor that um, is pretty. Uh, Just I like the, the aesthetics to deal with. bothers people. <laughs> yes. The <aesthetics. laughs> they don't want to be you know, jar, Cutting people's jar. head off is exactly. Uh, you know, most to put to put Graham's head in a jar uh, is is a is a bridge too far for a whole lot of people. Whereas freezing a whole body, I think, has a lot less societal uh, pushback, and that's another reason why I think it's a smarter direction forward for cryonics as a whole. But I still am happy to write people who choose to be neuro only. Um, but I, I, the, my bias is for the full body, and I think there's good reasons for that. I think it's good PR for the company too. Um, certainly, yeah, like you said, uh, you picture a beheading, and then the then the process. I think people get kind of shy about that. It's it's. It, I'm sorry, it's yucky. I, I mean, I'm a signed up grandison for 27 years, and it's still a little bit yucky to me. And if it's yucky to me, I know it's yucky to a lot of other people. Right. Yeah. My, I, I feel a sense of of. Uh, kinship with my with my meat suit as well such as it is so i'll, I'll keep that and then uh, upgrade or, or you know modify as needed after the fact um that's that's my my expectation anyway i guess i wanted to end on uh well and of course whatever last sales pitch you'd like to do i you know rudyhoffman.com everyone be sure to remember that but uh what is uh what's your best maybe your best and your what's your upper and lower bound estimate for the likelihood of cryonics working i think that's a catching point for a lot of people they hear, well, like, well, sure, but then, like, these 10 things would have to go right, and that sounds, like, way too improbable. And I'm like, well, if you're, even if you're fairly pessimistic on all of them, that's still, like, 8, 8 to 10%. But that, that's my own guess. So, or yeah. not guess, my, my own best-informed Bayesian estimate. But what would you say yours is? Yeah, this, that speculation is certainly a really great question. As a matter of fact, I'm actually working on, you, you've heard of the Drake equation, I'm sure. I'm sure your well-informed listeners are familiar with the Drake equation, which took a whole lot of, of, of variables to and multiplied them out and then figured out, you know, to get a result. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that have to work well for cryonics to work, but there's a lot of things that have to work well for the people hearing these words to work. And you think about the amount of things in the chain, the amount of components that enable the conversation that we're having right now. It's incredible, but human beings are clever and we can put things together. Uh, the odds of your my cryopreservation working, uh, I'll speak personally, I think they're reasonably high. I'm going to give it over like 40 or 50 percent. 
and that's because I work really hard to make sure I do get a good cryopreservation. I don't I don't take existential risks. My wife is not only signed up but fully supportive. Everyone I know knows that I'm a knows I'm a cryonicist. I wear my bracelet all the time. I have a pretty good eye sense that uh, if I were to get sick, I would know I would know exactly where to go. Um, and that at least compose covers the logistics component. Um, there's other variables that have to work together. Yes, we know that. Um, I think it's certainly better than 10%. If it's a 1% chance, it's still an incredible option. And what the if it works right now, if it makes you feel better that I've done everything I can rationally do, I suspect those who are listening to these words are really smart, highly educated, super rational <laughs> beings who are trying to make the best decision they can about this thing called death. It's the big one. This it doesn't get any bigger than this. This is a life or death decision. You're making this instant as you listen to these words. And I suspect even if there is a reasonable chance of a 1% or 5% or 0.01% or 0.0001% of cryonics working and you could afford it, you should give it a shot and check this thing out. So in addition, you could do put cryonics in a, if you forget RudyHoffman.com, hit cryonics or cryonics funding. Uh, basically, you'll pop, you'll pop up cryonics organizations and you'll pop up my name. I score pretty high on this stuff. So uh, hopefully that is a good wrap-up sentence and a wrap-up idea. Basically, the odds are unknown, but if you don't sign up, the odds are 100% it won't work. Is that pretty? I like is that. Is that a strong I think close? That good. <laughs> I think so. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm a closer. <laughs> hey, you no, guys have been awesome. wonderful. You guys have been. I really enjoyed this, and I hope you hope people listening have found some value in this. And again, uh, you can pop on the. Uh, Amazon for affordableimmortal.com. Do the do the download. I'll I'll pay your three bucks if you don't like it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and, uh, all right. Let's put this thing in the can. You tell us how to handle it from here, Stephen. Sounds good. Well, we'll wrap this part up. And uh, once again, thanks again, Rudy. This was great. And uh, I I I've been shilling for you and and for Chronics for years. This isn't me just you know being nice because you're on the air. I've I've been this way. Uh, every time the subject comes up for the last yeah. several years. Well, thank um, you. It is my own best faith assessment. I know Inyash managed to get this together without a life insurance agent who was on board. He basically just had to, to push everything himself. When I contacted you, you said, here, yeah, let's, let's set you up with a policy. And that was it. I got some paperwork through the mail and had to sign it. I did never had to think about it again. Like it, it, this is a fairly easy process if you get the right people. And the only right person I know is Rudy Hoffman. So <laughs> thank you very much. We do really do absolutely do our best to make it as seamless as possible. Thank you very much. All right. Well, awesome. Thank you for joining us. This has been Great. really well, informative. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. And Jess, thank you. Mm-hmm. And Stephen, thank you. Have a wonderful evening and good luck and stay safe and sequestered out there, everybody. Thank you you too. We'll do. We sure will. Night, right. everybody. Bye. Bye. Okay. Um, right. I'm not sure if I should say welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy again. We have reconvened a few days later. and Welcome we back to the Bayesian yes. Conspiracy. The, all the people who paused and waited a couple of days to be in sync with us. We appreciate it. Your dedication to the show is noted. Heck yeah. And now we are going to be doing the sequences, yes? Yes. I believe so. Excellent. That's what I'm told. That's- of course, I could have missed it. Maybe there was some illusion of transparency going on. Well, I mean, we were the ones who told us, so we can change things if we don't want to be telling us like this anymore. But I think it's a good thing to do, so let's do it. Also, I was trying to make it uh, a segue 
but it didn't really yeah, no. land. I, I got it. it loosened, yeah. And thank you. Yeah, I get one chuckle, one chuckle a week, and I I can sur- I can survive. It was more of a smirk, worthy joke. Yeah, so we had some good ones this time. Illusion of transparency, which like, uh, yeah, and then expecting short inferential distances, and I feel like they actually would have been wait, really wait, good wait. ones. Uh, hold up just one second. Aren't we, um, oh, are we on? doing, uh, what was it? Is the molecular technology scientific and scientific evidence, legal evidence, rational evidence? Am I completely Not according to the website. Uh, oh, son of a bitch. Uh, should we, should we like, maybe? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll chop that. But <laughs> no, no, I mean, should we maybe like recon- reconvene a different day? I can't. If this, if this is going on uh, on Wednesday, really? I mm-hmm. record. We want more tomorrow night. That takes from like usually six to nine. So, um. crap. You know what? No, 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 no. I've read both of these um, a number of times. I know them all. Let's let's keep going. All right. all right, you got it. Yeah. So, I was saying that we have some good ones this time. Uh, illusion of transparency and expecting short inferential distances. Both of which would have been really good um, to go along with uh, talking to strangers, <laughs> especially illusion of transparency. It's very much um, in line with the major themes of that book. Uh, someone want to summarize it, or shall I go? <laughs> I think you're doing a great job so far. Go for it. Okay, so. Illusion of Transparency, uh, in Hindsight Bias, which was the previous one, uh, people who know the outcome of a situation believe that the outcome should have been easy to predict in advance. So uh, related to this one is the Illusion of Transparency, which is we always know what we mean by our words, and we expect that others know too. Um, I think I've also heard this called mind reading. Uh, I forget if that's from... I think that's a uh, thought distortion on the list of like the CBT skills. Um, it also just sounds like a um, popular nomenclature for like this this thing, right? Yeah. How am I supposed to read your mind? Uh, oh, well, I meant this, but this said that, and the standard rejoinder is how am I supposed to read your mind? You know, when all I could hear is what you said. Yeah. Now that's a. Uh, well, I kind of want to dig into it more, but I'll, I'll keep summarizing. Uh, there was an example in here. So uh, June recommends a restaurant to Mark. Mark dines there and discovers A, unimpressive food and mediocre service, or B, delicious food and impeccable service. Then Mark leaves the following message on June's answering machine. June, I just finished dinner at the restaurant you recommended, and I must say it was marvelous, just marvelous. And so this was a scenario that was presented to a group of subjects. and I'm trying not to laugh. Sorry, it's just a, it's a funny situation. I know, marvelous, just marvelous is a, a phrase that I should use more in my life. So, um, I think that'd be marvelous, just marvelous. <laughs> when this was presented to a group of subjects, 59% thought Mark's message was sarcastic, and that Jane would perceive the sarcasm. Importantly, and uh, among the other subjects, uh, told scenario B, which by by the way they're saying um. The ones who were told that he had unimpressive food thought that it was sarcastic and that Jane would perceive this sarcasm. And, uh, Jane, huh, there's a typo. (laughs) Maybe we should report it. Apparently, uh, Jane and June are used interchangeably in this. Oh. But anyway. 
Notice. Yeah, the, the subjects that were told scenario B, that he received great service and food, only 3% thought that Jane would perceive Mark's message as sarcastic. Um, the study seemed to indicate that an actual voice message was played back to the subjects, which I guess is not clear. <laughs> it seemed to indicate. Um, and I mean, that, that's even, that makes it more surprising, though, that people could get such different um, impressions from a voice recording. Yeah. So, and I think um, it would be very important that it is a voice recording, because if it was just written down, you could, you know, imagine the tone of voice to be whatever you wanted, but if there was an actual voice recording, everyone hears the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I like this, and it's illustrating a point that we don't necessarily have to um, generalize too much from this, you know, the specific example, just because it's, you know, one study and all that, but this this general phenomenon stands with, with or without this study. But as far as this goes to large parts of like whether or not I'd assume it's being sarcastic would be my priors on uh, Mark's usual like behavior. If he's a sarcastic person, if he's the kind of person who's ever used the word marvelous before, <laughs> um, little things like that. But yeah, the, I think the gist is that if they if the group was told, hey, look, he's being sarcastic, um, or rather that the food is bad, um, they assume that he's being sarcastic. And of course, they would assume that they know that he believes the food is bad, but that they also believe Jane would perceive the sarcasm. And so, what I what I like about this too is this was done in 1994. Um, <laughs> if you run that into text messages today, you get to just go completely hog wild with this. Yeah. What emoji did they put? <laughs> That's why it's really important to use emoji. Is that a sarcastic wink or a serious wink? Yeah. There, there was another. Um, Another study he cites from 2002, which I thought was even more interesting because they told a person to say an ambiguous sentence to an audience. Uh, I think one of the examples given was the man is chasing a woman on a bicycle and the speaker is given a picture to show that it's a man running after a woman, that the woman is on the bicycle, as opposed to like the woman is running and the man is on the bicycle. But when you first hear it, it could be interpreted either way. Anyways, they were told to say the sentence to an audience and estimate how many? How much of the audience understood what they were saying, and they always overestimated how many people understood them and underestimated how many people uh, misunderstood them. And like I thought that was extra interesting because then the speaker had full control over how they would utter the sentence, right? And they're looking at the audience, so maybe they're getting some kind of feedback from them, but they still just were wrong guessing on how many people actually understood them. Yeah. As we know from talking to strangers, you can't even trust what feedback you're getting from the audience. Yeah. So um, if you want to test this at home with your friends, uh, I forget if I even heard this from the Lost Wrong community or somewhere else, but if you tap um, if you tap your finger on the table to like the tune of Happy Birthday or the Star Spangled Banner or some, some tune that you would expect people to know and then ask them what song was that, nobody will know. It'll sound exactly yeah. like, I don't know, Jingle Bells to you or whatever, but this, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's just random tapping. A good example. I remember uh, Julia Gillett mentioning that once, like, five years ago on Rationally Speaking, and I never forgot that. Um, it, it's it's another good example of, like, no, no, like, this couldn't be more clear. I'm clearly doing Happy Birthday, and they're like, I don't know, man, you're tapping your fucking fingers. Is that ACDC? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so, I mean, okay. This is going to be a spoiler for Harry Potter and Methods of Rationality, 
So if you haven't read it, uh, skip forward two minutes. But uh, Eliezer intended it to be incredibly obvious whether or not Coral was Voldemort like he was in canon. And I'm not going to say if he is or not for people who didn't skip forward, but uh, it is not at all incredibly obvious to the point where the uh, community was, the readership uh, at the time he was writing, was very much split as to whether or not Quirrell was Voldemort uh, until the reveal was made later on near the end of the book. And like to Eliezer, he was just like, how are people not getting it? This is the most obvious thing in the world. <laughs> it, it, it should, there shouldn't even be a discussion. In all of our defense, even if it was obvious, which I maintain that it was less obvious than he thought it was, but part of the reason for that is because, like, it was, if anything, it was too obvious. Yeah, it was And there's no way it would be laid out that clearly if that's really what was going on here. I, you know, I agree, but it's it's a thing that happens a lot with, uh, with writing, where you think the audience is going to get something, and they don't, and then you overcorrect and, like, really overexplain things, and people are like, don't spill it out like I'm an idiot. You know, I can read into the text a little bit. It's it's a very difficult line to walk. Yeah, that's why beta readers are really important. Yep, yep. That's what I'm appreciating a lot about read, wrapping up a ward right now is that the author has, uh, you know, to tie all these loose ends together and I think do it to the satisfaction of the raging mob and <laughs> the, the mob at least the the only mob that I I see and listen to, which is like the subreddit and the discord, um, they are, uh, it's hard to summarize, but they, they they're much more like you picture mobby than like Reddit where Reddit will just like, you know, is happy just to fling shit across the fence. They'd be like, ha ha, this sucked or whatever. (laughs) Um, these ones will jump down your throat. Be like, I can't believe you would say that, you know, you, you would put heroic sacrifice on this pedestal. Really, it's just like suicide. And that's terrible. And this is, this is awful. This shouldn't be, you know, lauded or, um, whatever it's, I, I can't. And Brian brought this up in the last couple of episodes that we want more, like having to write in front of an audience that is dissecting your work while it's in progress. Um, that's I think so would add a whole new dimension to it. I can't yeah. even do it when I'm just trying to like have an imaginary audience. I end up second guessing myself. I'm like, is this too dark? Is this, am I talking down to my audience right now? Is this going to be, I don't know. Uh. Yeah. The, the post ends on a real world example with huge consequences where uh, two days before Germany attacked Poland, um, kicking off World War II, Chamberlain sent a letter that was intended to make it clear Britain would fight any invasion that occurred. But it uh, was phrased politely and in diplomatic speak, and uh, Hitler thought it was conciliatory. So the tanks rolled right in. Those polite Brits. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the the main lesson from this post seems to be uh, when you have something in your head, you may think things are very obvious, but they are not necessarily in any way obvious. They very much are not. The best thing about that is that you can never really be sure someone actually understood you. Like the, um, the the premise at the top of this is like um, nobody knows uh, like you know what you meant to say by your words and expect others to know it too. Sometimes if you're not 100 percent sure what you meant, then like that's obvious that the person you know probably won't know what you meant if you didn't. But even if you do, and they tell you back in words that make sense to you, you might have this kind of like double illusion of transparency. But that is like way less obvious than a like literal double illusion of transparency, where you know I just 
didn't communicate exactly as clear as I thought, and then you repeated my miscommunication to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This 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 can kind of go on to the, this weird recursive level that to me is just kind of fun and wild to chase down. But uh, well, there's two. It is. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. There's two different frameworks that I'm thinking of just off the top of my head um, where people try to mitigate this effect. Uh, one is the CFARS um, double crux communication style where, and then uh, yeah, there's also the uh, Gottman slash Gottman Rappaport intervention, which is a relationship counseling thing. And they, they both have the same kind of structure where one person speaks, the other listens, the other person has to repeat back what the other person said, but in their own words. Or like, my, what I'm hearing is that you feel like this, and that's making you feel that way, and I can see that you're upset about this by like, your expression, uh, is that right? And you're not allowed to move forward until you feel convinced that the other person understands you. <laughs> like, you feel like their like ability that. to rephrase it back to you is, uh, yeah, that's what I meant to say, or I think, um the double crux example it's supposed to be like even kind of a steel man where it's like yeah that's even better than what i was trying to say uh i guess that's the ideal version yeah that was in Rappaport's rules of like civil discourse or something one of the four rules was you should be able to repeat back your opponent's argument in such terms that they say wow i wish i thought to put it that way mm. and i feel like if you could do that 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 is the the apex of having a good conversation with somebody you disagree with uh, it, it shows, at the very least, that you understand them well enough to simulate what they're trying to say, and that means you're prepared to engage them. I think it's great. Yeah, it's also, although I've, I've tried to have these kinds of um, conversations, and it's it takes a lot of practice, and it's very unnatural. First of all, it makes any conversation take like a million times as long, so it's the reason why people don't just speak like that all the time. <laughs> right. I think, um, I don't know. Well, and the other reason, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, the other thing that I tried to do, which I've talked about before, is the radical honesty thing of, especially with people close to me, that, you know, there's less inferential distance. Uh, haha, it's like a segue. Um, I, I was going to do the segue too, yeah, but I wasn't yeah. going to use that one. I was, I was going to say that I think that would work to resolve uh, confusions like Mark and Jane were having about yeah. the, the restaurant, right? Because you could trust that Mark would accurately represent how he felt about the restaurant. Rather than, like, is he joking? Yeah, like, is Mark a guy who's sarcastic all the time, or does he never make jokes? But most people are kind of in the middle of that. I don't know, I like to, like, use radical honesty, say things clearly and bluntly, as much as possible. Totally. And some, some of the times that the reason that we can suspect that short conversation will suffice for a long conversation is, is necessary, because we expect short inferential distances. Yeah, we should I believe probably. I didn't write that down first. That was a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear the audience laughing. Even if Inyash, all right, there finally cracked a grin. All right. Oh, geez, I'm sorry. There, there must be a long delay between when I'm doing things to to when you're seeing them. No, I'm giving you guys a hard time. That wasn't a, an uproarious laughter joke. Anyway, expecting short inferential distances is one of the ones I didn't have to reread, but I did just because it it stuck with me really well when I, when I first read it. Um, the short version is that. Uh, basically, when you're explaining something to somebody, you have a well-grounded intuition that a short explanation will suffice. 
because in our ancestral environment, short explanations were all that was necessary because we all basically had all the same prior knowledge. Um, whereas now, if, if you're trying to make a nuanced point in a difficult subject and you give a short answer, like a tweet, um, <laughs> it's extremely reasonable to, to understand that somebody, or to expect now that someone will completely misunderstand what you're trying to say. Yeah, uh, like he, he gives the example that since you grew up in bands of no more than like 200 people maybe, uh, all knowledge was passed down by speech or memory, and so like no one was that far removed from you in knowledge. If you discovered a new oasis, you didn't have to explain what an oasis is or why it's a good idea to drink water or anything. Like almost everyone knew, everyone knew almost everything that everyone else knew. There was not a lot of of distance between you and other people that you had to bridge. And uh, now we have what he calls. Uh, abstract disciplines with vast bodies of carefully gathered evidence generalized into elegant theories transmitted by written books. Their conclusions are a hundred inferential steps removed from universally shared background premises. Yeah, we have really intense specialization and everything. Yeah. So yeah, sorry to interrupt that, but I, I wanted to get that out real quick before you went to the why it's, uh, why something that's more than one inferential step away seems to be, uh, crazy or lies or something no no you're good i and i brought up twitter because it's it's always uh i'm not on twitter but i i see tweets once in a while on reddit or i'll hear about the fallout sometimes uh, i don't know if dawkins uses twitter less or if he's just slightly less insane on there but for a while he was just totally tanking his reputation i think by trying to have nuanced arguments in 140 characters <laughs> and now they've now they've upped it i think to 280 so he was able to get out the whole sentence like there's every reason to expect that eugenics would work from a scientific perspective, but that doesn't mean that we should do it or something. And yeah, well, the thing is, like with Dawkins and with a lot of people, they just assume everyone knows basically the same thing that he knows. That's and, my point. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly like, the point. I'm speaking to an audience of my fellow scientists here, right? And it turns out, no, with Twitter, you're speaking to literally everyone. Yeah. And most of them don't have that knowledge. Yeah, so, I mean, there's nothing scientifically controversial about the fact that it would be super easy to breed in traits into people if you really wanted to, right? Yeah. If we were, if, if aliens visited Earth tomorrow and said, if humanity, on average, isn't a foot taller in two centuries, we will blow up your planet, that wouldn't, that would be not, uh, I mean, it would be an inconvenience. Um, it would be hard, but it wouldn't be difficult. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be, be literally impossible. Uh, I'm not going to say that it would yeah. be like super easy, fairly <laughs> inconvenient. Yeah, right. So it might not be. Uh, it would be definitely an inconvenience, but it's not like the. It's not like we would have no idea how to address this challenge, right? Yeah. It would be totally doable. Um, I'm not. I'm not hung up on the eugenics thing. Other, you know, it's also it's a very loaded word. Um, yeah. It was just. It was the, the the idea that I think of is it's. It always seems like Twitter people have. Uh, you know, they try to make a, a nuanced point. That's what I was on Twitter for like one summer, and I got into an argument with somebody about uh, gen like female and male genital mutilation, and I realized that we were just talking past each other, and that it was impossible to have a conversation. I'm like, this is the worst platform ever for talking to people. Why am I here? And then like you get on there for like Twitter. Yeah, movie reviews, jokes. I think is the absolute platform for it. Uh, there, you know, you can get great one-liners and. Uh, uh, zingers on Twitter. I think that's a, a great place for it. But as for the rest of it, meh. Twitter was a fun yeah. social experiment that we did with the world. And yeah. I guess I'm not sure fun is the term I would use. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so either. I, 
worked as a social media manager for a bit, and that was just like the worst two years of my life. <laughs> I mean, that that's an exaggeration. I have had worse things happen than having to be on Twitter, but it was up there. Yeah. Just like the inanity, I just like. Uh... <laughs> yeah. The so to to go back to the post, it says that in the ancestral environment, there. Uh, Anyone who said something with no obvious support was either a liar or an idiot, an idiot, because there was no knowledge that everyone else in the band didn't already have. Or couldn't um, easily get. Yeah, yeah. And conversely, if you say something that you think is blatantly obvious and the other person doesn't see it, then that other person is an idiot. Or they're being deliberately obstinate just to annoy you. And, uh, and on top of all that, if someone says something with no obvious support and expects you to believe it and gets all indignant when you don't, then they must be totally crazy. So this, the issue of not having this common ground between each other is, you know, a recipe for horribleness because listeners still assume that everything should be visible with one uh, step, maybe two. So they take two steps back to explain um, maybe three on the outside and not realizing just how much distance there is. In, uh, from universal knowledge to new knowledge. So this is so many professors, or just probably teachers in general, but I remember in college there would be like, the sign of a good professor is somebody who understands inferential distance. I think mm. a lot of teachers, like good teachers who care about the teaching process, are really uh, skilled at this too. Like that, That's probably the field where you need to know it the most. Any, any field maybe where you're, um, you know, the main thing you're trying to do is communicate something to an audience that's unfamiliar with it. But yeah. I remember just having really bad professors who are, you, they start their PowerPoint, you're like, okay, you're taking notes in the first slide. Like, all right, I'm following. Wait, what? <laughs> the next slide is just completely like, and then there's this vector thing. And I remember um, I started out majoring in environmental science. I had this professor who did that sort of thing. I, I have a page of notes, like before I dropped that major and switched to art. <laughs> for like a bunch of reasons, but like there was a page of notes that was just a, it like slowly devolved into a bunch of doodles. And I remember Vector Kitty <laughs> was flying over the environment and I'm just like, yeah, I, I don't have no idea what's even going on anymore. <laughs> something, something. Totally. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it was the worst teachers were the ones that didn't remember what it was like to not know the subject they're teaching. Yeah. yeah. And so they start talking and to them, it's it's they've been doing it for thirty years, and like, yeah, this is old hat. I get this. You guys will get it too because it's really easy. But they don't remember thirty years ago when they opened their first textbook, right? Dude, you, it's surprising how quickly that sets in. Because oh, so taking just a stupid video game as an example, um, in World of Warcraft, you have to learn boss fights. There's all these little mechanics you got to do, things you got to watch out for. It takes some practice, right? And before you have it down, it's freaking hard as hell. You're learning all these new patterns and tricks and things to watch out for. But once you have it down, it is super easy. It is barely an inconvenience, as they say. <laughs> so once people have beaten bosses and moved on to other bosses, all the time you see people saying, how is anybody stuck on this earlier boss? They're super easy. You just kind of blow through it. And like literally maybe two weeks ago, they were in the position of, oh my God, this is impossible. How will we ever do this? <laughs> because it's, you know, everything is impossible until you know how to do it. And then it's just trivially easy. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how quickly you can flip from one to the other. That's really hard um, to, it's hard to get in that mindset when you're a new learner as well. 
that's something that I've kind of been reading about and struggling with. Like when you're an adult and you're trying to learn a new skill, it's really hard to be in the position of I'm an idiot who knows nothing about this, like, I don't know, programming or art. I'm trying to teach art to people. And I think the sequence actually gets into this too, but you, the the teacher also can get really frustrated with people who don't understand what seem like basic concepts to you. But like, there are things that seem like basic concepts to me because I learned them when I was a kid. Like I've been drawing forever. Yeah. And I remember trying to teach like, uh, some older folks at the library, like, okay, like, here's how you draw a face and not understand. Like, I, hmm. <laughs> it, that's another thing that's really funny. Uh, this, describing the anatomy of a face was uh, like, okay, you have to like, you do the oval, you divide the oval in half, that's where the eyes go, your eyes are halfway down your head. And like, that seems, I'm trying to explain like the cognitive things going on, I'm like, this seems unintuitive, because most people look at faces, and they don't look at the rest of the head. So yeah. you, you think the upper third of the face has the eyes, but actually it's the middle of the head. You have to draw the whole head. That This part's covered with hair. No one looks at that part. But like even as I'm describing all this stuff and I'm trying to like go step by step as slow as I possibly can, I'm walking around the room and people are still drawing the eyes on the top of the forehead. I'm like, no. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> like, look at me. Bad Where are my eyes? You know, are you going to put them up here? How weird would that look, right? Yeah, just, just bring it down. Yeah, it's – I think uh, – I imagine, I mean, part of it, that sounds, to me, that just sounds like a hard subject. I can't, I, since I can't draw, maybe that, maybe I'd be a, a good art student because I know I suck at it, but I, would, I wouldn't be confident in my ability to yeah. do it right. Whereas yeah. other people, the the part where it could be maddening, he uses the example a lot of like scientists trying to explain things to non-scientists yeah. and how like simplest explanation is a magic word of power among scientists because they've been inculcated with the, the legendary history of science from Newton to Einstein and it's like so you hear a biologist say oh it's the simplest explanation then a physicist who doesn't know biology can be like oh okay I will add a lot of credence to that because we are also scientists yeah. um, they know whereas, how important that is yeah and so that, that's like the annoying part is when you give like a long explanation of uh, something to uh, somebody who's not uh, in the field that you're, you're profounding from you know evolution to a layperson might be a good example um, like they, you can explain everything and they're like, okay, yeah, I think I'm following you. I think you're an idiot. I think you're wrong. It's like, okay, well then you, then you weren't listening and you didn't follow because this couldn't be simpler and you're the idiot. So it's really, yeah. um, that's not how I feel. I'm saying that that, that no, inclination I've, to feel that way makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's yeah. like very much, um, I think you get in this headspace easily of this person's an idiot and they're not listening to me. And the other person is thinking, like, this person thinks I'm an idiot and that I don't know, like, basic stuff. Because, <laughs> like, the, the thing about drawing is that people think they know how to draw a face. And, like, you know, even kids with crayons are usually drawing faces. And it's like, I know how to do, like, eyes, nose, and mouth, you know? Like, come on. But, like, you don't. That's It's can, just so hard to get in the headspace. It's like, actually, you don't know this stuff. Yeah. You have to be really humble. Oh, like, yeah, I, he says in the post that uh, that to a lay audience, it's the simplest explanation may be interesting, but that's hardly a knockdown argument. But from the biologist's perspectives, they can see how you know it might sound a little unintuitive, but when they reject evolution, even after they've had it explained to them that it's the simplest explanation, they're they're just idiots, and there's no point talking to them. 
and it, it's clear to you that this isn't what Eliezer means here either. He's saying that that's the feeling that one gets because they're expecting short inferential distances. Yeah. When you correct for that, then you then you no longer view the uh, the unable to follow you along layperson as an idiot. You're like, okay, I clearly didn't actually explain myself. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. that's why Richard Dawkins' book explaining evolution is. I don't know, 350 pages long and not five. Um, and if, to somebody who has the, and even that, it could be twice as long if you wanted to explain, he, he probably does a bit, it's been years since I've read it, but like, if you wanted to explain little things like, here's why we value um, uh, short explanations, here's why we value uh, replication, um, all of the, the, the foundations of science, if you wanted to dig into all of that, then the book could be much longer. But I think he, he, he probably does a bit. This is meant to be a you know top to bottom book, but that's my point. Is like you can explain evolution in three minutes, if not less, depending on who you're talking to. But if you're starting from scratch, from somebody who has no idea what you're talking about, then sometimes you need 300 pages, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have a. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Sure. Oh, okay. Well, the joys right. of Skype. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Well, then I guess I was going to say that he also says that um, if people see you visibly attaching greater weight to an argument than is justified in the eyes of the audience at that time, then they also think you're crazy because, you know, you shouldn't put that amount of, of weight on that evidence. So you have to go back and first explain why the evidence that you're about to explain is uh, as weighty and important as you're about to, you know, lay out with. And that takes explanation in itself. And so he's saying there's, there's a very long chain but you can't you can't drop any hints that maybe you're working a dozen inferential steps away from the audience, uh, or that you have special knowledge they don't, because then they think that you're condescending and arrogant. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you know trying to explain to somebody why astrology isn't a thing, and if you if somehow you know she believes in astro astrology, but we shared everything else in common. I could just be like, you realize every physicist on Earth thinks that it's bullshit or knows that, you know, had, would bet their lives on it being bullshit. You would immediately change your mind. Um, you're, like, you're like, oh, I, okay, if all the physicists who actually know everything there is to know about stars or everything that humanity can know yet so far about stars thinks that it doesn't, you know, that the constellations don't impact my life, then I guess I'm wrong. Um, I think if it, I were to actually believe in astrology, I would first have to not know enough of physics. Do not care it's what true. Is I don't know. People are really good at compartmentalizing. I no. Well, once you know that stars are giant gas balls and that they're so freaking far away, what what else is there to know? I it's people are very good at compartmentalizing. I have religious coworkers who you know spend their days like bioengineering cells. No oh, God. Don't these bioengineered cells look intelligently designed? It's like, yes, because we made them here in the lab. <laughs> it's not the same, and you know it. <laughs> I think what this all comes down to is the punchline. Uh, at the bottom, he says, and if you think you can explain the concept of systematically underestimated inferential differences briefly in just a few words, I've got some sad news for you, which, first of all, is a reference to the fact that this entire post is pretty long but also to the fact that it links to three other posts that he's made beforehand. And uh, while he doesn't give it away in this, I think at this point it should probably be clear to most people that the purpose of the sequences and their, you know, several Bibles length worth of word count is to bridge an inferential gap that he saw at the very beginning. 
company. It was like, here's the mass audience of everybody in 2006, and here is this conclusion I have reached, and I have to convince people of this, but oh my God, it's going to take a while. And this is a freaking impressive project that one person set about to bridge this massive inferential gap. Like just, just the fact that he thought he could do it is kind of amazing to me. And then the fact that he actually did it is just crazy. I'm very impressed by people who try to do hard things. Yeah. I, I get pretty frustrated when people shit. I don't know. Generally, I, I dislike haters, um, like in any field, but especially when people you see themselves as critics or bad mouthing, like some artwork or project that someone has done, or like I'm like, okay, what have you made? <laughs> it's generally. Yeah. All right. I guess that is the sequences. Um, I do want to point out that somehow we accidentally skipped over several dozen sequence posts to get to these. Uh, I'm not sure how that happened. Maybe an accidental page down or something. Oops. So we're going to be backtracking quite a bit. And next episode, we will talk about the posts, scientific evidence, legal evidence, rational evidence, and is molecular technology quote, scientific. Um, so we have skipped a few inferential steps to get here, but hopefully we can backfill them without too much trouble. It seems like these were in the order because we just did hindsight bias and stuff. Uh, yes, we did. And if you go to the list of all the less wrong posts in order, the illusion of transparency and expecting short inferential differences are a few dozen down from uh, hindsight bias. Huh. Yeah, I don't know how that happened either, because uh, we've had these listed as the next ones for a while. But, oh well, we'll, yeah. we'll figure it out. Um, it was good to talk about them, and, you know, it's a setup for later, and then we won't have to read them later, right? That's right. Or we can again, we'll just do it really fast. Okay. All right. Well, this is fun. I know that it's probably some patience on the listener's part listening to poor sound quality and uh, the constant overlap of our voices whenever any one of us wants to start talking next because of the considerable lag time on Skype. Um, this will be the show for a while. We'll try and mitigate that as much as possible. But uh, anyway, thanks for bearing with us. Hope everyone's having a good oh, it's evening here. So <laughs> hope everyone's having a good time wherever they are and whatever, whenever they are. I don't have anything else to add. What about you guys? Um, I do have one bit of listener feedback that I don't want to put off any longer because it's directly relevant to the um, book that we were talking about a couple episodes back, the Talking to Strangers one. So I figured we should probably hit that right now, yeah, and we can put off the rest till later. Uh, so this one is from Why We Cur on the Discord. It says, it seems to me like the book, Talking to Strangers, is trying to say that strangers aren't possible to read and that even trained professionals get it wrong. Uh, but that just seems wrong to me, given my experience and the people I've seen. It just seems ridiculous to me to suggest that people are as opaque as the author suggests. I'm pretty sure the book is trying to say that it's mostly futile to even try to read people. When they talked about the book on the podcast, they seemed to mostly agree with its findings, or at least not be surprised by them. To me, these seems like quite strange claims. I wanted to read that because, first of all, noticing confusion is a huge uh, foundational rationalist skill, and... Why Weaker has noticed some confusion and is uh, voicing it. 
And also, I wanted to know from Jess, since you're the one who read the book, was that a correct um, summary of the book, or did we overhype how much, how opaque it says people are? I think the point of the book is just that we are much worse at reading strangers than we self-evaluate. It's not to say that, like, intuition doesn't exist. <laughs> And uh, that some people can't be good at this, but the every chapter of the book cites multiple studies where they have shown um, pretty definitive like suggestions that uh oh I wish I had prepared a better response to this. Uh, I guess the the question would be like, do you think this book is trying to ratchet down how confident people are? Or do you think that it is saying, um, quote, it's mostly futile to even try to read people? I think um, I'm a bit surprised by how negatively a lot of people are skewing the message of the book to be. Um, I think that this was meant to be sort of cautionary, in particular because it focused on the case of Sandra Bland and began and ended with... Um, you know, police violence, it talks about court cases, that, like, Gladwell's trying to point out a legitimate problem with a lot of our systems, which are that they are um, systems that were designed with illusion of transparency. Um, okay. So, what what the book is trying to address is, are, are things like the police system, the court system, uh, and, um, yeah, there was the, you know, one about consent and rape culture. But these are, I think, good things to point out, whether or not they're, they make you feel good or whatever. Uh, I'm wondering whether you occur. Um, I'm, I'm curious what they had as like evidence on their side, because it sounds like they're saying, from what I've seen in my experiences, this seems false. And I think that that sounds a lot like um, having, I am really struggling to find words. Uh, that, that sounds like exactly the symptom that this book is addressing, right? Well, uh, like, anecdotes yes, of course is what I'm saying. Yeah. In it, but that's sort of the point. No, I, I couldn't remember the word anecdote. Um, it's when, when you will describe, say, like, Say your friend believes in astrology and you say, well, you know, scientifically that makes no sense. The stars are, they exist in 3D space. There's no two-dimensional shape that you can draw over them from the Earth's perspective that makes any sense. <laughs> identical twins seem to falsify the concept of astrology, given that we don't all have identical days to identical twins. That sort of stuff. But um, people will... Being a twin is actually yeah, a good case like, point for a lot of bad to counter a lot of bad arguments. I have a lot of <laughs> cases where... Astrology is predicted correctly. Uh, you know, I read the I read the astrology section in the newspaper every day, and um, predicted a bunch of things really accurately. Like I, I remember even being um, a little kid, I was reading about the description of Scorpio, and I was just like, nailed it! Like, damn. <laughs> but uh, then there was that famous. You, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was probably going to bring up the same thing as you, the experiment where they will just um, use the exact same 
description of someone that's so vague <laughs> that it could apply to anybody. And uh, didn't they, they passed it out to people and they were like, yeah, we've had like a professional astrologer come and analyze each of your birth years and this is a description of you and everybody has to rate how well they think it describes them. And everybody rates it as being very accurate. But it was you know the guy who did that study? Uh, James, Ra James Randy did that. Oh, cool. Way back in the day, I want to say in the 70s or 80s. Um, he wore like his stage makeup. He looked crazy. And <laughs> uh, like I, I think it was this, it was like his whole persona. And he was like, oh, yes, I, I have come and I've got a friend of mine that's a really tight astrologer and he's really good at this. And why don't you all rate how this is? And I'll come back next week and pick up your guys' assessments or whatever. Like maybe he left the room. I can't remember. But um, then it was, then he, he at that, then he wrote what it was on the board. And then. All right, if you guys got this one, raise your hand. And then he got, then he gets to look, and everyone raises their hand, and then they all notice as everyone else raises their hand, and then kind of sheepishly go back down, and they're like, "I <laughs> didn't realize that everyone got the same one. How could it describe us all so perfectly?" Um, yeah, I guess. And then the 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 thing about uh, inferring things about strangers is, I guess, it's like what? How much can you infer from somebody based off of a fact like that? Um, I guess probably that they're not a physicist, or certainly not an astrophysicist, or not even certainly, but almost certainly. But beyond that, like you can't read a lot of their personality. You can't like, oh well, they're probably like a shit, you know, shallow person who believes lots of pseudoscience. Maybe that's the one dumb thing they believe. Maybe when they said, maybe when they said they believe in astrology, they used believe in a different use than you use it in, and you failed to. There was a, an illusion of transparency on their part, because to them, belief is synonymous with, uh, you know, makes me feel good or I enjoy doing this every day, right? Um, so I think we've gotten way off from the original question, though. Like, how well do you think people can read other people in real life? Because I usually think I can tell if people are, like, positively or negatively reacting to me, but um, maybe I should not think that at all. I know for a fact that I can't because I have an anxiety disorder and I've had to do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy to get to the point where... For example, every time I go on this podcast, I'm not being like, Stephen and Edyash hate me and think I'm dumb and don't want me to be on the podcast anymore. And like, it just... We only think that half the time. <laughs> no, I seriously would think that about, like, I, I negatively skewed everything. Um, you know, you when you have an anxiety disorder or various kinds of mental illnesses that do this sort of thing, you read into sideways glances. Um and then I've had lots of the kinds of interactions with people because I'm interested in this kind of stuff. And my friends are all psychology nerds where we do have some kind of misunderstanding and then we sit there and analyze the misunderstanding forever. And it's very much, um, I, I liked the chapter where they were talking about friends, <laughs> the, the show friends. I'm trying to remember what the uh, cognitive bias was. Um, oh, people being mismatched where people have an idea of what an angry person looks like or a jealous person or, you know, an, a grieving person. And almost nobody actually does the stereotypical things that we think of as representing those. They're very much like also cultural. They're also like familial. Like my family has a very different way of communicating and reacting to things than other people who grew up with other family structures. That's been like an interesting thing to dig into when I'm interacting with other people where, for example, um, I've had people think that I'm angry because 
especially when I get stressed, I default to a blank facial expression and kind of a monotone voice. And that's me dissociating <laughs> or me kind of being in distress and dropping a lot of the stuff that I'm doing on manual a lot of the time, like injecting expression and tone of voice and facial expression. But neutral reads as angry uh, to a lot of people. I mean, they showed, um, there's been studies where depressed people were given a bunch of photos of people with neutral expressions and they read them as hostile or as sad or they were much more likely to rate the people's expressions as looking something negative. People who have been abused uh, apparently are much better at seeing anger and those sorts of aggressive uh, facial features to the point of seeing them when they aren't there sometimes. Yeah. Like an echolalia, or I think that's the word. Yeah, I mean, um, I again, I Which, don't think that the point of the book was to say that. Been abused. Huh? Oh, sorry. I was saying, which is a survival skill when you've been abused? Oh yeah. No, definitely. Um, it's yeah, it's interesting too because you can get um, really, you can get people who are really going to confuse each other if you have somebody who was raised in a very loving, stable family environment and somebody who had the opposite of that trying to interact about basic things. <laughs> Darn delusion of transparency again. Yeah. All right, well, I have to go, so we should thank our patron and wrap it up, yes? Sounds yeah. good to me. Is it my turn to thank the patron? I kind of think it is. I think Not so. Sure. It's been a while. Okay. Uh, we don't. We don't keep track of whose turn it is, so... It's right. not that any of us love you less, it's just that we don't keep track. Yeah. So this week we want to thank Christopher James uh, for supporting the podcast. He has helped bring all of this to all of you. Uh, for, you know, we we do not necessarily have to rely on wondering whether or not Christopher James likes our podcast because money helps uh, break through that illusion of transparency. <laughs> you can directly signal that it's valuable to you. And this helps us bridge the inferential gap to everyone else as we keep putting out these podcasts. Is this, is this, this is bad, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's good. And Amazing. I think what we can also say is that, you know what, because we have people who, who financially support the podcast, while we do have a great setup for recording in a single studio with all of us, we don't have a great setup or rather you guys don't for <laughs> mine's perfect. Cause I got this, this sexy blue Yeti microphone, but maybe we, we can use some of our, very generous patron dues to get you guys some mics and uh, and improve the quality of the show going forward for the next few months. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't and, have a mic that Eating Ash right. lent me. I just need to get it like working with my laptop. And, and to with the people the new who aren't Mac aware, we do, we do have a Discord. And I guess as far as the, I want to mention on the, the Patreon note that, you know, I don't know what the number is. Uh, today but it's higher than it was on friday uh people who don't have jobs anymore so if you're tight for cash start cutting patreon right away you know we won't, our feelings will be hurt um if, if we don't make the cut like this yeah. isn't you gotta make rent that's more important yeah if you're noticing this loss of income uh like the loss of income that you give to us by all means uh we our feelings don't be hurt if you say hey sorry uh job stuff that's you know by all means um I just I want to make sure that that's perfectly transparent to everybody. Uh, yes, so um, thank you everybody for listening. Rate and review us on whatever uh, podcast service you use. We greatly appreciate it. 
Uh, you can chat with us on the Discord, which we are using, or at least I am reading a lot more of now that I'm home all the time. Uh, right. Even though I'm working from home, it also makes it easier to slack off when I'm not in the office. Uh, and mm. yeah, uh, yeah, what was the other thing? Oh yeah, we have a subreddit that you can uh, post on as well. And we appreciate all of you. We, we sure do. do. This is awesome. Okay. And uh, I forgot this wraps up uh, Rudy Hoffman's episode. If you guys do have any questions about chronic life insurance, do reach out to Rudy Hoffman at rudyhoffman.com. I'll link to it in the episode description as well. So, and with that, take care, everybody. All right. Bye. All right. Bye, Bye. everybody. Bye.